This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for a Thursday edition. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I missed last week, didn't I? You did. We missed you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about that. That was outside my control. Apparently, so is my ability to recall things that happened last week. I had this vague <laughs> recollection that I know we had it planned. And um, I think I had a little, um, a little, I don't want to say health issue, because that sounds more serious than it was. I just wasn't able to do it. Or if I had tried to do it, the answers would have been even less coherent than they normally are. <laughs> so I think you and Terry just decided that to spare everyone kind of the wild ramblings of uh, someone who was under the uh, influence of medicine. I think <laughs> we're glad you're back. We definitely missed you. And there are a lot of great questions, as you know, we were going to do them last week, but we saved them up for this week. All right. Well, um, I'm excited about that. And I can't promise any higher <laughs> level of coherence than I would have had last week. But I mean, we can we can try. We can remain hopeful. And we even yeah. have a golf question this time, but we saved yeah, it for the end a, for today. So that's, that's exciting. A, Nah, not really. Not anymore. That's a very sensitive subject. With <laughs> oh, me. no. Well, uh, I saved it for the end so we can just store up all that emotion. Okay. Well, it's all negative emotion, um, so it, it will not be hard to find it. We, we can do it whenever, and I'll still be able to dig it up pretty quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get started. We have a question from Ralph in New Hampshire. He writes, in legal cases where sentencing is discretionary to some degree, what is your opinion on victim impact statements, whether the victim or the victim's family express forgiveness or desire severe punishments? Oh, Ralph, that's a great question. Um, it is completely appropriate, and I would really defy uh, anyone. I've had plenty of debates with people about the propriety of victim impact statements, but look, I there not only is it not inappropriate, it is completely appropriate for victims or, you know, in homicide cases or in cases where the victim is incapacitated, the family members of the victim. I mean, why would you not be able to tell the sentencing authority, the judge, what impact the crime has had on your life? I mean, here's what I think maybe possibly some people may not. Unless you spend a lot of time in court, you'll probably be stunned to know almost nothing is said about the victim during the trial, mm -hmm. except in death penalty cases. In death penalty cases, which are exceedingly rare, there is 
I mean, I, I had homicide cases where you couldn't even put a picture of the victim into evidence. I mean, I, I stopped trying. You can put the picture of him or her as they um, lay dead. You can put autopsy pictures in, maybe, sometimes. But you can't put like a picture of somebody as their family wants to remember them. And you, and you can't call witnesses to, I mean, I'm thinking about a young woman right now, a 19-year-old homicide victim, murder victim that I, I prosecuted the case. And it, I mean, her family would have loved the opportunity to tell the jury what a wonderful person she was. But but the legal our legal system doesn't allow it. And I understand why they don't allow it. I'm, I mean, here's why you, you can't you're not supposed to. It is illegal, unlawful to kill someone, whether they're good or bad. I mean, you can't murder. I mean, if you murder a bad person, that's a crime every much every bit as much as if you murder a good person. So the character of the victim, I get why. I get why courts say it is not relevant. You got to prove the elements of the offense and the character of the victim. If it's a if it's a bad person, that doesn't minimize the crime. And if it's a really, really great person, we don't have a category of of murder for really, really great people. It's it's murder. So I get it uh, from from a legal standpoint. But that's the trial. Ralph's question was about sentencing. So the trial is over. This person has been found guilty. And in South Carolina and uh, in other states also, but I'm obviously most familiar with South Carolina. There's there's a slight pause um, in the proceeding. And then the victims, you know, the judge is about to pass sentence. And Ralph correctly notes sometimes it's a mandatory prison sentence. There is no discretion for the judge. It's a mandatory life, sometimes mandatory minimum 20 years. But there are lots and lots of cases. Take murder, for instance. The range is 30 to life. Well, if you have a 21 year old in front of you, then that's the difference between getting out when you're 51 or not getting out at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, sex assault cases. I mean, can you imagine a young woman living through a sexual assault? She has to testify. But, I mean, she can't testify about what this has done to her. That's for the sentencing hearing. So I I really defy anyone to make the argument that victim impact statements are inappropriate or should not be considered. And thank God, many states have codified victims' rights. South Carolina has, has a victim's bill of rights. You have the right to know when something's going to trial. You have a right to talk to the prosecutor. You have a right to address the court. Now, for the rest of what I think is this question, I spent a lot of time talking to victims and family members in murder cases. Obviously, the victim's not there. So in murder cases, I would talk to the family members about what is best to say. And human nature is such. I'm not I'm not excusing it. I'm not trying to explain it. I'm just telling you it is. Human nature is people resist being told what to do. They, maybe not you, Mary Langston, but the rest of humanity, other than you and Terry, 
resist being told what to do. We don't mind being asked to do something. We don't mind being persuaded, but we don't like being told what we have to do. Or maybe it's just me. I don't like it. But judges don't like it either. So I would always get the victims to say, I want you to tell the judge exactly what the death of your loved one has done to you or done to his or her children or done to a spouse. I want you to do it, but I don't want you to ask for a sentence. And most victims trust you enough that they will take your advice. And the result was actually, it was a a profile in psychology. When I was in the court, um, for other cases, and the victims, you know, apparently didn't have that conversation with prosecutors, and I've heard plenty of them demand that the judge sentence the person to life, and the sentence wasn't life. It's almost like the judge wants to let people know that that is his or her decision what to sentence, and they're not going to be told what to do. But it is completely different when you just say this has ruined my life. My life will never be the same. But don't tell the judge what he or she should do. I mean, judges, particularly good ones, I mean, they're going to factor in the fact that this defendant took from you the only person that mattered. They're going to factor that in. I remember one time, it was on a guilty plea, Somebody pled guilty to homicide by child abuse, and I will spare you the facts, but they were gruesome. But it's a plea, and ordinarily, judges sentence the low end of the guidelines, the low end of the range on a guilty plea. And we'll have another question later on about why that is, but you're saving the family a trial, you're you're avoiding the chance of losing. So usually judges, not usually, but often judges will give you the low end. And I remember the trial judge, who's a very good friend of mine. He's now on the South Carolina Supreme Court. He took a break for about 45 minutes. And he reflected on what people said on behalf of that child, that infant. And he came back and sentenced that defendant to life without parole on a guilty plea. That does not happen very often. So it is powerful if it is done the right way. On the other hand, I cared very much. I had a mother whose daughter was brutally killed, brutally killed. I will spare you the details, but just trust me, it was brutal. And because of her faith, she forgave him. It was her son-in-law. She forgave him. She did not want him to spend the rest of his life in prison. Mm. And I told her, I am going to let you say whatever you want to say. And then I am going to stand up afterwards respectfully and um, and say something else. And I can interrupt you and I can tell you what you said. You are welcome to ask for mercy. But I am not. And my guess is that the judge is not going to do it. And she did what she wanted to do. She did what her faith. She was a remarkable human being. I could never do what she did. She forgave him. 
she didn't want him to, you know, rot in prison and die, even though he killed her daughter. So, yes, victims, Mm -hmm. victims and family members of victims, 100 percent should be able to tell the sentencing authority what impact that crime has had on their lives. I mean, for Pete's sake, the defendant's mom gets to stand up there and say, please don't send my son down the road for life. He's all I got. I mean, they get to do it. So why can't the victim's family do it? Mm. That's a long answer, but it's an important question. And it is powerful if it is done correctly. And it is also powerful when the defendant turns to the victim or the victim's family members and expresses genuine remorse. I don't mean jail, Jesus, when you, you know, once you get in trouble, then you start, you know, asking for help and it's fake. We call that jail, Jesus. I didn't, I doubt you like that expression, Mary Langston, but that's what we called it. People find Jesus when they're about to go to jail. That doesn't work. But genuine expressions of contrition and remorse uh, do work. So that's the that's the book on on victim impact statements. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank you, Ralph, for that thoughtful question. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Our next question is from Gary, and it's more political, Trey. He writes, will Congress ever pass legislation that limits the amount of money a candidate can spend on an election so that huge PACs and lobbying money will disappear and good folks who want to run for an election will not be overwhelmed and discouraged from running? Gary, they did pass legislation, and it was found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court as a violation of uh, the First Amendment. Now, that said, he asked about PACs and lobbying money. Um, I'm not going to mm-hmm. like give a primer on FEC. The, the, the individual limits, at least when I last was there, an individual can give $2,700 uh, in, a, in a federal race. A couple could give $5,400. A PAC, a leadership PAC, could give $5,000. Those were the limits. You could get $5,000 from like an employee PAC. If if a big company, just say Boeing, for instance, their employees wanted to contribute money, the the maximum, as I recall it, was $5,000. And the and the individual maximum is, is less than that twenty seven hundred couple would be fifty I'm sure it's more than that now but not much. What I think Gary is talking about is not money directly given to a candidate, but money spent on a candidate's behalf mm. by um, super PACs, where there are um, few, if any, uh, limitations. And um, now there's not supposed to be any coordination between the candidate and the super PAC. 
So let's pick pick an example. You know, I I won't call his name because I don't want to embarrass him, but I got a friend in Greenville who's politically active, uh, wealthy businessman, successful businessman. Let's assume he wanted to put $250,000 in a super PAC and run ads either helping me or hurting my opponent. Mm -hmm. Um, No one can stop him from doing that. And the Supreme Court's thought process is he has a First Amendment right. But he can't tell me what he's doing. We can't coordinate it. I can't call him and say, boy, it'd be great if you used another picture. You know, I don't look great in that picture. Or why don't you like hit my opponent on this issue? That's illegal. But if a wealthy business person wants to donate or set up his or her own pack, the Supreme Court, um, we did have legislation, federal legislation, and the Supreme Court uh, struck it down. So I hear what you're saying. It, it costs, you know, Gary, probably even in a district like my, like my old one, uh, the one Mary Langston lives in now, one media market, geographically compact, um, probably a million to a million and a half dollars mm-hmm. to run a credible campaign. Maybe even that won't get it done. So will Congress pass legislation limiting, you know, like everything else, politics creeps in. Uh, the left wants to do away with super PACs, but they don't want to touch unions. Unions spend a lot of money on elections, too. They want to get rid of these what they call shadowy super PACs, but they don't want to do anything to limit the teachers union from getting involved in elections. So, you know, what's good for the goose ought to be good for the gander. If you're going to stop right-leaning entities from spending millions of dollars to influence an election, I mean, stop it all. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank you, Gary, for that question. Our next question is from Tammy, and she writes, how do we help with the issue of loneliness in a simple way? She says it is overwhelming, but important to talk about. And I think she's talking about, we covered that on the Sunday night show a couple weeks ago. Uh, yes. Well, I started to say run for Congress. That's a very lonely, uh, (laughs) it's a lonely experience. And then Mm. if you win, it is lonely. Um, but it's still not worth it. So don't, I mean, don't do it. I mean, loneliness, you know, Tammy, um, I I don't, I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm an expert that it's real. I'm an expert that it is heartbreaking. I'm not an expert on it because I've never experienced it. And and I think people who like being alone, uh, which I think you would agree, Mary Langston would include me, mm-hmm. maybe they're less prone to bouts of loneliness. Um, I have a dog that can't stand to be alone. I cannot stand to be alone. There are people who cannot stand to be alone. So how do we help with it? Inclusion. When I used to go to schools and speak, I I would tell these students, there should never be a kid sitting by herself or himself in a school cafeteria. Mm. Never. So if it's true there, It's it should be true for adults at a restaurant. Now, that said. When I was in college, I would go look for a table where no one could see me. I I still do it. You've seen me do it. 
Mm-hmm. I sit with my back because I want to be alone. I want to read. But there's nothing wrong with checking, just saying, I mean, do, do you, you remember at the Capitol Hill Club, I used to move the chair, mm-hmm. Mary Langston, so it would dissuade people from sitting down <laughs> because I, I, I just being alone does not bother me, but it mm-hmm. bothers a lot of people. So inclusion um, and being aware of it, just no matter what facade someone may put out. So when I was a kid, I I heard, I think it was a youth pastor, describe it this way. The whole world is a bunch of people walking around in a circle looking for a friend. That's the whole world. Just a bunch of people walking around in a big circle looking for a friend. And all you got to do is stop. And the person behind you is going to walk into you. And you got a friend. But just stop. You're lucky if you got five people that you can't live without. Five people in your life you just can't live without. Some people need 500. I think you're lucky if you got five. But so, so who is likely to be lonely? Um, people that have been married for a long period of time, or maybe not even a long period of time, but they lose a spouse. That's somebody, so someone who uh, maybe is a single parent and the last child has gone off to school. Mm. Uh, someone who's had a dose of bad news, lost a job, um, you know, suffered some financial calamity. There are so many fair weather friends in the world that as soon as you're down on your luck, um, they they're not around anymore. So kind of be investigative and scout out the the person who wins the club championship or wins the art contest or is the best pianist. They're probably not going to be lonely. People want to surround themselves with success. Mm. It's the person that lost. You know, the person that you know played a series of wrong notes and kind of shuffled himself or herself off stage. So I think you put your finger on it, Tammy. The key to helping with loneliness is knowing you could exist and being on the lookout for it. And I mean, you don't have to like walk up to someone who's alone and say, hey, are you lonely? Because chances are they're going to say no, even if they are. Mm-hmm. Just I, I like humor. I, I try to use humor with people, make them laugh. Um, or just... Well, I'll say one more thing about it, and then I'll quit talking about it because I'm not an expert on it. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 but I'm in the minority, so I don't know much. About, I don't know as much about the Bible as you and Terry, Mary Linkson. But in there, there, in there, a story about a guy named was it Job or Job? Job. Job. Mm-hmm. Job. Spelled like Job, but Job, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So Job is here. I, I knew how to pronounce it. I, was just <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Job suffered a series of calamities. You recall that? He did. Yeah, I'll spare you kind of the th- theological uh, tightrope we have to walk as to why he experienced those calamities. It mm. might have had something to do with a conversation between two people, but be that as it may, he suffered a series of really unspeakable calamities. You remember that? I do. 
All right. And people tried to come to him and ministering to him. Mm-hmm. Do you recall the group that meant the most to him and helped him the most? I do. Yes, sir. They it, didn't say a word. Not a word. They sat with him. So you don't have to say anything. Sometimes there's nothing to say. I mean, somebody loses a child. Somebody loses a loved one, you know, young. There is nothing to say. Mm. I mean, what are you going to say that's going to make that better? But presence, being with them. So, Tammy, it is it is it's a huge issue. You would think it would not be with how connected everyone is, but it is a huge issue. You've already taken the first step, which is acknowledging that it's an issue, being cognizant and aware and on the lookout for how that issue manifests itself. And then just presence. I mean, you know, if it's Terry, there are also going to be words, you know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's so delightful, you won't mind the words, but presence, this being with someone who feels lonely, it doesn't almost doesn't matter what you say. That was well said, Trey. Thank you so much for answering that. And thank you, Tammy, for touching on an important topic. We'll be right back after this. Our last question is from Andrew, and this is our golf question, Trey. And Andrew's from Speaking Georgia. Loneliness. I know. So he writes that he used to play golf decently, but I had to quit for a couple of years due to an injury. I'm trying to play again, but I'm frustrated because I can't seem to hit crisp iron shots anymore. Do you have a swing key or a swing thought that you have used that you can pass along to help me? Oh, uh, Andrew, I don't know the nature of the injury. I can tell you if it's back, then it's really, really hard psychologically to get over a a back injury as it relates to golf. Um, I I know that from firsthand experience. Mm. If it's an elbow, uh, I don't know what the injury is, but here's what I'll tell you about about iron shots. Um, You sort of have to figure out I don't want to get too complicated. Andrew, you need to figure out, are you a front post person? Are you a center post person? Or are you a rear post person? And what I mean by that is there's a pressure shift in the golf swing. You have to be on your lead side for a right-handed golfer. That's on your left side. So I'm going to, you know, if you're a left-handed golfer, I I just reverse what I'm saying. But if you're a right-handed golfer, 80% of your weight at least needs to be on your front side, your your left side, the side closest to the target at impact. The key to hitting crisp iron shots is to have shaft angle. The angle of the shaft has to be pointing towards your target and your pressure or weight, they have to be on that lead side. So when I mention where do you post, some people, when they take their backswing, they get on their front side, their lead side very quickly. I, I think, you know, there's a there are plenty of golf teachers. I'm not a golf teacher, but they would be more of a front post. And then you got Tiger Woods, who's what we call kind of a center post guy. He does move to the right and then he moves to the left, but not as quickly. 
And then you've got Lydia Ko, who's a fantastic LPGA player, Gary Woodland, who's a really, really good PGA player. They're rear post players. They move a lot of their pressure to the right side, but you have got to get it back on the left. You will never hit crisp iron shots unless you are hitting the ball first. And you don't want to flip at the bottom. You don't want to be hanging back. The, the, the enemy of a crisp iron shot is what I call hanging back. You hang back on your right side, on your trail side. So to hit a crisp iron shot, it has to be a descending blow. You have to do, you have to hit the little ball first and not the big ball, the big ball being earth. Hit the little ball first, then take your divot. I think one of my buddies was telling me the average PGA pro makes the divot is like inches in front of where the ball was. It is that weight is on the left side. The shaft angle was on the left side. You have de-lofted the club a little bit, and it is a descending blow. And that is the only way to hit consistently crisp iron shots. You can fake it with a flip at the bottom. You can fake it. I've done it for years. You can have your weight on your right side, your trail side, or even in the middle. And and if you have good hand-eye coordination, you can flip the club, and it'll feel crisp. But it, it ain't lasting. To last You have got to get your pressure, your weight on your front side without your head being in front of the ball. And and that's why I don't know the nature of your injury. It's hard if it's a back issue. Psychologically, more than physically, it's hard. But you've got to stay in posture, stay down. And that pressure, we used to call it weight, it's really more pressure. The pressure has got to be on your left foot. Now, next time we will talk, if it's on your left toe, you're likely to hit a draw. If it's on your left heel, you're likely to hit a fade. But it's got to be on the left side. All right, Mary Langston, I know you (laughs) left about 30 minutes ago and you thought, golly, Moses, but you spend more time analyzing a golf swing than you ever did any legislation you voted on. And you're right about that. (laughs) You're right about that. It sounds like Andrew asked the right person. So thank you, Trey. That's, um, look, I marvel at good iron players. Uh, My son Mm -hmm. is one that has a different sound. I had played golf with, um, with guys that play golf for a living. And I play golf with a guy named Tim Dunleavy who played golf for a living. The ball has a different sound when they hit it. And it is, I am convinced, because they have figured out how to get their pressure and weight on the front side, on the left side. And that's the key to a a crisp iron shot. Well, thank you so much, Trey. And thank y'all for the wonderful questions this week. It was a variety for sure. You know, your voice trailed off because I think that golf question set you back <laughs> mentally a little bit. You may yourself be experiencing a bout of loneliness <laughs> after 
after that question. No, I'm amazed at how detailed it was. When I read the question, I thought I never thought about crisp iron shots. I didn't know that was a thing. But uh, now well, I do. Little known fact, Mary Langston has a very good golf swing, but Mary Langston is also athletic. But mm. when we went to um, my wife also has a very good golf swing. Uh, mm-hmm. She used to play golf with us, but she is not. She doesn't get mad when she hits a bad shot. She doesn't throw clubs. She doesn't. <laughs> so, you know, she and I can't play together anymore. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to like be happy when you don't hit a great golf shot, I can't play with that. <laughs> she might laugh if she misses it. She did laugh when she missed it. <laughs> she laughed. She she thought it was funny. <laughs> I would. That club would be, well, it'd be snapped in half if I missed it. Um, I hope not. I don't break clubs anymore. I don't break them anymore. That'd be an expensive sport to break clubs. You know what? It was worth it. I've seen people throw bags of clubs in in a pond before. Mm -mm. I've seen people helicopter club into water. But golf can make you do (laughs) things that nothing else can make you do. (laughs) Even Bernhard Longer, whom I've never met, but I would love to meet him someday. He's Mm. one of my favorite golfers. He is so, such a gentleman. Um, I think he's tied with Hale Irwin right now for the most number of wins on the Champions Tour, the senior PGA. Mm-hmm. But he is so, – you would love him, Mary Langston. He's a very devout believer and just a w- wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And he three-jacked uh, the other day. He three-putted, which is not good if you're wondering. <laughs> and he javelin through his putter towards the bag. Oh, and I no. thought, you know what? Maybe I do have a chance to make it to heaven. If Bernhard Longer gets mad enough to javelin throw his putter, maybe, maybe I do have a chance. Oh, my goodness. All righty. Well, we'll never get another golf question. That's for sure. Um, I don't know about that. I I think we will. You were so in detail, too. So you know what it's like. Uh, well, I've I've played with people who are wonderful iron players, and I have uh, I know what it feels like to hit a crisp iron shot. It's an addictive feeling, and I and I know what it's like to hang back on my right side and flip my hands. <laughs> so, uh, Andrew, you're not alone in that. <laughs> and I also know what it's like to have a, a bad back, and it's mm. hard to stay down in a golf swing um, with a bad back. Psychologically, it's hard. So. Hopefully that helps Andrew, and um, mm-hmm. he, when he hears this and says, God, he sounds like a witch doctor. I'm not listening <laughs> to that guy. Uh, well, then he'll go to a PGA pro, and I'll bet the pro will tell him pretty much the same thing. you got to be on your front side. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Trey, and thank you all for sending us your questions. Please keep sending them our way. Yeah, I do, um, and um, I will uh, talk to you whenever you accept another call from me okay and we hope to see you next week we missed you last week and we're glad you're back and feeling better uh well i never said i was feeling better but i well, am but hopefully. i am <laughs> but i am as a matter of fact uh, okay. yeah well when you get old um things just kind of you know pop up and mm. i can't remember the last time i had to lay down and take a nap the last time i had to take a nap was uh, when a teacher or a parent made me do it. Uh, And even then, I didn't do it. So I don't know what was wrong. But 
I'm okay this week, and mm-hmm. God willing, I'll be okay in the future. And uh, we'll keep uh, doing this Q&A podcast until you move on to greener pastures or do your <laughs> own podcast. Well, thank you so much, Trey, and we'll see you all next Thursday. Bye-bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.